You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hi, this is Mark Lintonmeyer. On episode 90, we'll be interviewing author David Brin about his 2012 sci-fi epic, Existence. Now, science fiction, like a thought experiment in philosophy, serves to examine hypothetical situations. What if we invented or discovered X? What would happen then? And just like philosophical thought experiments, this can be done for a variety of purposes. Maybe the author wants to bring to light something about human nature or political dynamics. Maybe it's a serious attempt to propose that a theory X is true and to show it would follow from that. Or maybe it's an actual proposal that we invent Invention X or a cautionary tale against that invention. Hard sci-fi is usually described as focused on speculatively exploring scientific possibilities, while space opera at the other extreme just uses the future as a backdrop to tell a story. I think any of these strategies can yield something philosophically interesting. Simply by taking a story out of familiar surroundings, the author can get you to think about the connection between human behavior and our environment, especially our technology. In a world of the future where more of our material needs could be satisfied more easily, do we end up liberated or not? How would living in outer space, or in a partly mechanical body, or with your mechanical eye connected to the internet, or having your consciousness copied onto a computer, affect what it is to be a person? If the author's purpose is to theorize about the nature of space and time, or about how aliens might differ from us, or what different ways of communicating or reproducing or traveling might look like, then the philosophical interest is even more obvious. At the same time, the issue of the relationship between philosophy and science emerges here. Science fiction, in making large-scale speculative predictions, is certainly not using a scientific method. It's not an inquiry emerging out of a specific scientific community or paradigm. But at the same time, many sci-fi fans, including, I think, Bryn, don't have a lot of use for academic philosophy, which may seem too fixated on history, conceptual analysis, and dwelling excessively on picky details, on legalisms about how we should best describe things that really aren't necessary to settle in order to adjust to the changes that the future may bring. To give a couple of common sci-fi examples that come up in Bryn's book, Can I achieve immortality if my consciousness is recorded and put into a machine? Now, forget about whether the machine will persist. That's not the point. The philosophical question is, assuming that the virtual me lives on indefinitely, has all my memories, and thinks it's me, is it really me? Should my drive to survive make me want to undergo that procedure? Does it count as surviving at all? Now, Bryn's characters do ask this question. They do worry about this, but when one of them wakes up in such a state, even knowing that there are other duplicates of him elsewhere, and he's clearly not the same being as those duplicates, having a different conscious stream from theirs at that point... He says, yes, I guess it worked. I survived. He doesn't say, that's interesting that that other organic being had himself recorded. We don't get the point of view in the book of the original, who dies out of the reader's view of old age at some point. 
Presumably, he had the experience of death just as he would have otherwise, only with the sense that just as if he'd created a statue that would still be around or had lots of children and grandchildren who revered him, there would be beings still around to care about the things that he cared about, which is nice. I get the impression that Bryn doesn't think that the philosopher has much to add to these real, though of course imagined, circumstances. Artificial intelligence is treated similarly. In the last hundred pages, the story jumps forward in time, and there are fully intelligent androids that are presented as undoubtedly having conscious experience. Some of the narration is even told from the point of view of an AI. Again, there's reference to some people that insist that it's all just a simulation, that these AIs aren't really conscious, but the facts as presented are pretty obvious. The AIs pass the Turing test with flying colors, and the holdouts are mere speciesists. Neither of these issues is central in the book Existence, whose main question is, will humanity survive technological growth? Early on, there are quotes from a fictional work called Pandora's Cornucopia that outlines scores of possible extinction events covering man-made and natural cataclysms, and one of the key plot points in the book causes most of the Earth's population to come to believe that no species anywhere survives this technological adolescence. Again, as foreign as I think this is to actual scientific procedure, contemplating this kind of prediction doesn't fall into one of the traditional categories of philosophy either. It does call, of course, for some reflection on human nature. According to most fiction, and this is a particular beef of Brin's, society is inevitably corrupt. When the kids in the movie E.T. find E.T., of course they can't just call the police because the government is going to want to cut E.T. up and, who knows, probably weaponize his blood. While not denying that there is always jostling for power in societies, that the rich will inevitably try to work against democracy and equality, Brin is much more hopeful about the goodwill of individuals and how that plays into institutions they try to create. Much of his picture of the near future, and the bulk of this book takes place only 40 years or so from now, reflects his view as expressed in his 1998 book, The Transparent Society, that advances in technology that we see as eroding our privacy will be a net gain for democracy and freedom. Yes, the government can see us, but we can also see them. Leaks when something nefarious is going on are already near inevitable, and the key to good government is openness, where each government action can be scrutinized, debated, and reversed if it's not working. This should sound familiar to those who listened to our Karl Popper episode, who wrote The Open Society and Its Enemies, and as with Popper, Bryn's political beliefs are not easily captured using our left-right spectrum. Bryn has openly expressed contempt for this spectrum and puts his views about it in the mouth of one of his characters near the end of the book. Instead of left-right, we should have two dimensions. On one axis, you have progress versus conservatism, and while Bryn seems the point in being cautious, the chief villains in the book are throwbacks who want to stop technological development. There's even a terrorist group that models itself after the Unabomber. On the second axis, you have people that favor centralized versus decentralized power. One of the features of Bryn's future in the book is the existence of smart mobs arising out of a massive spirit of productive amateurism that is enabled by the Internet, and presumably some advances that make it less necessary for those in the developed world to devote so many hours to jobs. A key character, a journalist, is able to quickly rouse a smart mob of hundreds of independent experts who are then able to advise her at lightning speed. An artificial intelligence interface is able to quickly sort through all their various communications and speak to her in a more or less unified voice to deliver the consensus judgment of the group when there is one. This sci-fi invention perfectly captures Bryn's model of independent people working together. And another group of villains in the piece, who not incidentally also buy into the anti-technology line, are oligarchs who want to keep scientific discoveries away from the general populace and use them instead to cement their own power to keep surveillance one way in the manner of a panopticon and hide their own activities. But with so many different factions around, so many various creative individuals and groups with radically different points of view and capabilities, this strategy doesn't work out so well for the oligarchs. They can successfully use their wealth to stay wealthy and influence events, but they don't get to make the final decisions and keep all the goods for themselves. 
So make sure to catch our interview with David Brin, where we'll try to engage him about this remarkable number of ideas stuffed into a single book. Thanks. 